Hello, everyone. Uh, we'll get started here in just a minute or two. Thank you for joining us today for uh, today's Journal Club webinar. All right, I think we can go ahead and get started. Uh, my name is Paul Bierman. Uh, I'm the Director of um, Education Events for SNEB. Uh, welcome to today's Journal of Edu Nutrition, Education, and Behavior Journal Club webinar. Uh, this is the beginning of a series of 11 webinars with a focus on nutrition, education programs, and implications from the field. A special thank you to the SNEB Food and Nutrition Extension Education Division for helping select articles from the journal showcasing the work of cooperative extension nutrition educators. As the official peer-reviewed journal of the Society for Nutrition, Education, and Behavior, JNEB advances nutrition education and behavior-related research, practice, and policy. Before we begin, uh, I have a few pieces of information to review. First of all, uh, I will be putting a handout with today's presentation into the chat. We will be taking questions at the end of the presentation. Throughout the presentation, please type any questions you may have, either into the Q&A box or uh, into the meeting chat, and they will be moderated out to our panelists. When the webinar ends today, you'll be prompted to complete a short survey. Please take a moment to complete the survey as your feedback is greatly appreciated for our planning of future SNEB webinars. This webinar is being recorded and will be available free of charge to SNEB members under the webinar section of the website. Finally, watch for a follow-up email to be sent uh, in the next few days that will include a link to the recording for the session and the handouts. Uh, and then we will also be working to get you your CEU certificate for your attendance today. I will now hand things over to today's moderator, Dr. Lauren Haldeman, Chair of the Nutrition Department at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Lauren? Thanks very much, Paul. And thanks everyone for being here. I'm, I'm really happy to be um, kicking off the Journal Club series this semester and focusing on nutrition education programs and implications from the field. So, um, 
we are going to uh, spend some time today meeting our panel and also learning about um, the, the how can um, practitioners um, engage with the journal, publish with the journal, how can be part of the future of the journal. Um, and I really would like this to be a webinar that um, will be productive and beneficial for you, the participants. So please, if you've got questions, at the end, we'll have plenty of time to answer those questions, but um, I, I want you to um, really feel comfortable in doing that. And, and as I said, we've got a, an excellent uh, panel of um, uh, professionals here who are, are more than willing to um, answer your questions. Just to give you an idea of how the format will be, I just have a couple of things that I'll, I'll start um, after we've meet, met the panel, uh, just to describe some of the mechanics of the publishing process. And then um, it will be more of a question and answer where I'll moderate um, the panel and ask our panelists some questions about their own experiences um, in their workplaces around publishing and um, again, their engagement with the journal. So bear with me as I pull up my slides here and we will um, introduce our panel. Okay, and as I mentioned, this is all about nutrition education programs and the implications from the field. So um, first and foremost, um, let's meet our panel and um, Julie Reeder, if you would please start and then we'll go to Melissa and we'll um, go to Erin. Uh, good morning or good afternoon, depending on your time zone, everyone. I'm Julie Reeder. Um, I'm with the Oregon Health Authority. Uh, I was in WIC for 22 years as the research analyst. And as of last week, I'm now our senior policy analyst for the Medicaid 1115 waiver nutrition services section. So I'm very excited for this particular webinar because I'm always telling Lauren, we really need to get more of the practitioner voice in there as much as possible, because I can tell you working on policy now, some of those experiences from the field, you know, are really needed to, to weave that in. And so I'm hopeful that today's, today's time together will lead to more of those publications. Thanks. Thanks, Julie. Melissa? Yeah, well, greetings, everyone. I'm Melissa Troncoso. I'm an active duty uh, Navy nurse researcher and nurse practitioner. I work in one of our large military treatment facilities as the head of research um, for, for nursing in other areas. My day job consists of doing a wide range of different research topics from things that the military wants us to study to my passionate areas related to nutrition, education, health promotion. Um, I also see clinic, which helps to inform my research. And then I'm also engaged in policy efforts within the DOD. So as the co-chair of the Military Nutrition Environment Working Group, and I do a lot of interdisciplinary work. So really excited for this discussion today. Thanks, Melissa. Erin? Hi, my name is Erin McCrossan. Um, I'm a senior research associate in the School District of Philadelphia's Office of Research and Evaluation. 
Uh, I actually started my career as a high school English teacher in the New York City Public Schools in the South Bronx, and then um, received a PhD um, from Temple University in urban education. So I really come at this work from an education lens. Um, but I have at the school district, I um, lead the health and nutrition grant evaluations, including our SNAP-Ed funded grant uh, grant evaluation work. So I work closely with our program offices that deliver nutrition education and policy systems and environment. Uh, my team also administers the Youth Risk Behavior Survey uh, from the CDC every year, uh, every other year uh, in Philadelphia. And I also work on uh, quite a range of other projects um, from math implement curriculum implementation to diversity, equity, and inclusion types of efforts. Thanks very much. Aaron, and I'm real fortunate. First, I, I work with Julie as on the editorial staff at JNEB, and I was able to meet Melissa and Aaron through the publication process and got to learn a whole heck of a lot about the great work that they're doing. So um, uh, I felt that they would be wonderful representatives today um, to be able to really get at that nutrition education programming and, and practitioner um, approach to um, publishing. So just very quickly, um, these are our disclosures. Our nutrition educator uh, competencies for this um, are also listed here as well for your for your own information there. So quickly, I just um, I thought I would just start just talking about the different types of manuscript types. So if you are thinking about publishing, in JNEB, um, some of the work that you're doing in your particular program, there's a lot of different mechanisms. Um, and and I, I wanna be sure that um, you all know that any of these manuscript types um, are certainly out there and available for you to uh, utilize in, in your um, publishing. So just generally speaking, and this information is um, available to you through our guidelines for authors, which we're currently streamlining. Uh, so we'll see some changes there too. But um, if you are interested in publishing a research article or a research brief where it's original research um, about nutrition education, uh, behavior, um, policy, any of those things, they have the standard intro methods, results, discussion, implications sections when we're, when we're talking about the research article and a research brief. Um, the, our methods papers are papers that um, come in two different categories, one of which we're, we're interested in intervention protocols. So protocols that you have used, whether you've um, uh, tested them out, whether you are using them full force, we'd like to know what are those uh, methods that you are using or in questionnaire development, tool, de tool development. Um, are you using a tool? Have you um, uh, validated that tool? Um, those are the types of methods, papers that we have at this point that uh, might fit your needs if you're looking to really get the information out about um, some of the protocols that you're using in your work, in your, in your programs. Um, we also have uh, reports, and those reports um, really focus on policy for the most part. I mean, there's there's some research piece, there's a research piece to that, um, but they really address how do um, uh, the how does the research or the methods, how do those impact policy? They're structured a little bit differently than your uh, standard research article or your research brief. We also have uh, perspectives which um, 
perspectives are an interesting uh, mechanism for uh, presenting both sides of a story or one side of a story um, and inviting another side of the story in terms of communicating opinions on current issues or controversies in the field. And this seems to also be a, a good mechanism for practitioners who are out there um, on the ground, really um, understanding what's going on in um, programming. And then we also have our gems, which are great education materials. And these are um, this is a mechanism for programs that you that you might be doing or curriculum that you've developed or um, or uh, a, um, a book that you have written or videos or some type of um, information that you would see as educational and uh, something that would be of interest to other people who are in um you know, nutrition education or in program implement implementation. The a gem looks a little bit different than a research article or, article or brief. You might have some pictures in there of that particular resource. Um, there's an evaluative component to that while it's not overly rigorous, but we do look for some evaluation of the um, resource that you are um, uh, presenting in this. So there's lots of different ways for you to publish with JNEB and I'll just put it out there that if you are considering or if you've got questions about these things, I'm always available to answer questions. Um, Julie is available to answer questions. Our editorial staff is available to answer questions. So please feel free to reach out. I really want um, to let you know that we are available for communication and we want it. So if you've got questions, uh, please let us know. And as Julie said, she, she has, absolutely been saying, listen, this is, we need to do more of this. And I am absolutely on board with that. And um, um, so I want to, I want to make it work. Um, the other thing that I, are just some general things, and I don't want to um, steal the thunder of our panelists, but just some of the things when you're thinking about tips for publishing, make sure your paper's a good fit. Um, review our aims and scope, ask any of us questions, and then really uh, refer to the guidelines for authors um, in order to choose the best manuscript type. Julie, do you have anything else that you'd like to say about that? I think just going back to the other slide for a second, you don't need to flip it back. Mm -hmm. You know, we certainly are not wishing that practitioner articles are all gems, right? Great educational materials. Those are shorter and they require a little bit less methodological rigor, but there are certainly many things from practice that could make an excellent report uh, perspective if crafted correctly, um, and then also probably a research brief. The flip side of that is that sometimes when I'm making a decision on a paper and I tell people, oh, this would really be better as a gem, some people feel like that's a downgrade, you know, perhaps to them. And that's not the case at all. It's really thinking about what type of format best highlights. You know, I always say it's, it's great to be a gem of a gem. Right. And so what really highlights the, the best story that you have to tell? So I just be open, I guess, to the different types of formats. And really, again, it goes back to what are what are you trying to most get good across and to whom? And any of these formats might really work for you. So don't box yourself in on a particular format type. Thanks. Thanks, Julie. OK, so I've got some questions for our panelists and um the first thing that I'd like to ask, and uh, Melissa, we'll start with you, okay? So um, 
tell us a little bit about the paper that you published. One of the papers, we've got a, a couple um, papers, one of the papers that you have published with us. If you could just give us a, a little bit of summary of that, it'd be great. Yeah, so the paper um, that I'm referencing was published last year in May. It's entitled Exploring Influences of Eating Behaviors Among Emerging Adults in the Military. It was a research article, um, qualitative in nature, um, so, and we can talk about why we chose JNAB and the options for that. But the paper focused on really helping us to understand what was influencing our early career active duty service members, food choices and eating habits from a broad perspective. And my clinical practice really informed going down this road of seeing, you know, what my patients were eating, why they were choosing to eat certain things. And so we took a social ecological perspective of looking, knowing that individuals are influenced and influence their environment. And so we looked at factors within the person um, interpersonal, so social factors, uh, physical environmental factors. We wanted to look at um, policy type of factors and also importantly, overarchingly looking at um, cultural factors of the military and Navy culture. Um, and so we um, did individual interviews, some observations using a design of focused ethnography to really understand um, the cultural implications and the paper allowed us to explore um, and share that information. And what we found in the end was that most service members wanted to eat healthfully, but they had to overcome a lot of barriers to do so. Uh, we learned about some of what were the facilitators and the barriers for them choosing healthy foods. Great. Thanks, Melissa. I'm going to jump to Aaron, and I'm going to ask you the same thing if you could talk a little bit about the paper um, that you published with JNEB, and then I've got some follow-up questions for all of you. Sure, so um, our paper, uh, again, I think it was it was June maybe, it got published in, um, in JNEB. It was called A Growing Relationship Cultivating Organizational Readiness to Influence Implementation of Policy Systems and Environmental Change Programming in SNAPID Funded School Community Partnerships, which is a handful <laughs> to say, but, um, Basically, when I first started in my role at the school district, um, I was tasked with kind of looking at um, our, all of our SNAP-Ed programming that happened in the school district of Philadelphia schools. We have seven different community partners implementing programming from the SNAP-Ed um, program overall from that funding. And uh, they, the kind of overarching question was, um, how do we how do we demonstrate collective impact of the programming? Which is a really hard question to answer because each of the organizations implements, they, you know, there's a lot of similarities, of course, but they all have their own organizational lens, their own way of doing things, their own, you know, what's important to them and their own ways of collecting data. Uh, so our first step uh, was to do a qualitative dive into what do these programs actually look like in our schools. And so in, in order to do that in preparation, um, we looked at literature around um, collective impact. We looked at school community partnerships. Um, we looked at, of course, all the literature pertaining to SNAP-Ed. And finally, we um, kind of settled as our theoretical framework uh, to design our study. Uh, we looked at uh, implementation science, and we really drew from the field of implementation science. And we had this huge project. We took a year to collect the data. Uh, and so this particular paper is focusing on the early stages of implementation um, around readiness. So how do 
schools or how do uh, SNAP-Ed implementers decide where to even implement their programming at all? Uh, and I think what's unique about our paper is that we are able to provide, we didn't see much in the literature that actually looked at the school in, in, the, in a school SNAP-Ed uh, community partnership. We didn't see very much that was really examining um, the the school staff's perceptions of the programming and how they're thinking about it. So our paper really um, contrasted school-based perspectives versus the program implementers' perspectives, uh, especially around uh, readiness. Um, ultimately, we um, conducted 19 case studies and we uh, conducted 119 interviews with school staff and SNAP-Ed staff and 138 hours of observation. And we found that there was a, a, a bit of disjuncture between the school staff and the SNAP-Ed implementers. Um, and SNAP-Ed implementers, kind of consistent with the literature on readiness, focused really focused on the school's existing capacity when assessing readiness for programming. Um, and in high poverty schools like many of ours are, uh, they're really... Uh, isn't a lot of capacity, existing capacity to implement any sort of new programming, to be honest. So we we ended up feeling like this was an, there were equity implica uh, implications for this, uh, so that when SNAP-Ed implementers only focused on essentially the part of readiness that um, is least in their control, uh, it it really concentrated programming in schools that already had the existing capacity and really left out schools that did not. Um, and so we were we really encouraged the SNAP-Ed implementers to think about the other two factors in, in readiness and uh, cultivating relationships, cultivating program specific capacity and motivation, which are which are aspects of readiness that the SNAP-Ed implementers really have a much, lot more control over in schools. And in, in doing so, they can um, really think about the partnership itself, both both pieces of the partnership developing readiness together, and that that would really provide a more equitable approach to programming. Great. Thanks, Erin. Um, so I asked you both to give your summary up front, just to kind of give some foundation and, and give an idea of what it was you were publishing. So my, my next question is, and we'll stay with you, Erin, is um, what do you see your role in publishing for your particular job? Um, so what is your role? Is that something that's expected? Is this something that you've done um, on your own? Um, for my role at the school district, it's definitely not expected at all. Um, it's certainly not required. I think everyone is um, impressed that we were able to do it. Uh, for the SNAP-Ed programs, they definitely encourage publish, you know, encourage publishing and provided the um, the time and the funding to to do that, you know, we we do feel like we invested a significant amount of time into this project, um, and we wanted to be able to share it with the broader um, community. So uh, I think SNAP-Ed was certainly very very supportive of us publishing, but it was difficult in our role at the school district on the school district side to really carve out time uh, because it is definitely not not a requirement of the job. And you worked with a team of yes. authors. On that mm -hmm. representing yes. uh, who who were they representing? Uh, they were all uh, employees at different points in our office. So primarily, my um, my co-author is Liz Fornero, um, and um, she she and I have worked very closely over the years. Um, probably my primary person, and then um, over the years, different 
sort of junior staff have come and gone and worked on different pieces of the project. Thank you. So Melissa, same question. Um, how do you see your role in publishing in your position? Yeah, so a little similar in that it's it's definitely encouraged. Um, I'm not in a publish or perish environment. There's a lot of work to be done and I would still be employed um, if I didn't publish, but it's encouraged. And the way I see it, it's helping to build a foundation of the work that I believe is important um, and having a record of that, right? Systematic investigation of here's what we did. And especially in some of the areas of qualitative work um, where sometimes people may say, oh, we have all this anecdotal evidence, but do we have the systematic collection of qualitative data that's rigorous to help inform um, some of our other research areas where we've been looking at maybe quantitatively um, and to help influence the policy. Um, for me, this was a this was part of my dissertation work. And so um, when I graduated, it could definitely be like you moved on to the next thing, but this was such a big piece of what I knew I wanted to be doing moving forward that I had to get it out there. And the collaboration with the committee members and partners who are actively engaged either um, in the nutrition space, in the research space, or the military performance space, this has helped to build a foundation and branches for us to move forward in other areas. Great, thank you. And, and Julie, I know we don't have a referent paper for you, but um, can you also speak to your role um, in your position for publishing? Absolutely. So I, I would say that uh, in public health in general, uh, depending on what you're doing, but public health nutrition programs like WIC, you know, there's you're you're really there to do WIC. Right. And so it's sort of keeping the wheels on the program and keep keep rolling forward. So that can be a luxury to be able to take time to to write and, and publish a paper. Uh, I guess I would also say I think it's always balancing staff and participant burden as well, um, because that is something, you know, when you're even asking your staff to, to answer a survey or you're asking them to recruit participants or those types of things that you've got to be really aware of you know what our other pressures are in the program at this time, um, and for some folks, you know they don't have access to an IRB, you know let's say, um, and so that can be a hurdle hurdle to publishing um, for, for practice based folks outside of the university system. Thanks, and that's a good point. Um, outside of the university, having access to an IRB can sometimes be difficult, and um, and that's something that we look for. When we're pu when you're publishing, that you have that the consent, um, and if that's something that you are concerned about, or have questions about, again, I encourage you to reach out to us um, to talk through that. And it actually leads me into the next question um, for you. So, Melissa, I'll start with you. Um, so, what types of things did you include in your work, maybe in anticipation of publication? Was there any? Um, thought about, I need to include this, I need to include this, um, knowing that you were going to publish. Yeah, so it was, for me, I think the opposite of what couldn't I include? Yeah. <laughs> I had to narrow it down. You know, you go from this 300-page behemoth to what is the nitty-gritty um, to tell the story, to show the rigor and the methodology, but also to be accessible um, and relevant to a 
variety of practitioners in the nutrition education space. Um, and so for me, it was kind of looking and seeing what kind of things is JNEP publishing? What does that look like? What are the key factors that I need to make sure I'm including from um, as you mentioned, the IRB, uh, the ethical standpoint things, the methodology type of things, what are critical um, in terms of reporting standards? Um, and then what do I need to include in the narrative that maybe I understand from my world as a military person that obviously I want other people who are not familiar with the military to read and understand this. So what do I need to include that helps them to understand the importance of this work and how it may late. Thank you. And, and I appreciate your point about what, what um, can't I put in, right? So you, a lot of times we find ourselves doing all sorts of um, things and really how do we narrow it even down to a, um, a concise report of the work that we're doing, whether it's through a research article or research brief. And I think that's probably something that we um, ask ourselves a lot of when we're out in the field doing multiple programming, working with multiple communities and things of that nature. So, um, you know, trying to really come up with that questions. So, so Aaron, I'll ask you the same question. What kinds of things did you um, include in your work in anticipation? Sure. Okay. I, uh, I will say we were not at all sure we were going to publish at all <laughs> when we first started this project. I mean, it is, you know, the project itself was um, really for SNAP ed and for school district purposes. Um, I think at the beginning of the project, I kind of always thought, well, this is this we're building this out to be quite a, a big research project, essentially. And um, um, and so I had it in my mind that maybe we would be able to publish. And I knew that we were going to need IRB if we were going to publish. Um, but the, another reason for getting IRB as well is that at, at least at the time, SNAPED does have a policy that if you're collecting new data on a population, which we were, that you do need IRB. So we were able to get go through an independent IRB. Our school district does not have one. Um, and we didn't have any any access to any sort of other IRB. So we went through an independent IRB and SNAPED was very generous in, in paying for um, the initial IRB application and all the amendments that we ended up needing in the future. And I'm really glad we did because I think um, if we had not taken that step, it wouldn't really have been as um, as realistic for us to publish. Thank you, Erin. Um, that's a really good point. And sometimes the resources aren't there to be able to pay for an independent IRB. So, Julie, you've got a different, you've got a, a unique perspective, having served as the associate editor for so long. Um, what's what types of things should practitioners be thinking about um, in anticipation of publishing? Maybe outside of what Melissa and Erin have both said. Yeah, I think uh, sort of adding on to what they've said, it's it's really thinking ahead of time because often in practice you you get something kind of rolling out and then there's a desire to go back and evaluate it. So it's building that in from the very beginning, you know, thinking what is our theoretical approach here? What do we have a logic model? Is there anything if we had to go back and measure that, could we in a reliable way? I think it's also thinking differently about the tools that you might have. I, a lot of things I've wanted to measure for, for WIC staff or WIC participants, there isn't already a validated, published 
you know, a tool of WIC staff opinions on such and such and so and so. So what is that type of work that you're going to have to do first to have some sort of validation of how you're approaching that? And I think it's a lot of getting buy-in, frankly, you know, from, from your, your own programs. You know, why is this important? Why, why do we need this level of rigor? How will this help you in your day-to-day? you know, by, by doing this. So it's sort of understanding that there's some, some shared impact, right. When you do a more extensive um, evaluation and again, it's, you know, your, your client focused or participant focused. And so, you know, how will this matter to you? And I think also helping people not be afraid of evaluation because there is a vulnerability in that because what if you find out that it's not doing quite what you think it is? you know, it's celebrating finding that out and getting people prepared to do that. So I think that's some of the, the pieces that that's a great contribution to, um, to not just keep doing maybe what isn't having the impact that we want it to. Thanks. Well, and I like that point a lot because we're always trying to, you know, taking feedback and trying to improve our our protocols and our surveys and our approaches. So um I appreciate that. It, sometimes it's a little worrisome if it doesn't come out the way that you hope it would, um, but there's a lot to be learned from that. So, so thanks for that uh, perspective to Julie. So we touched on a little bit about this, um, everybody, but I, I would like to kind of focus a little bit more on, not to be negative, but to, what are some of the challenges, Melissa, that you um, that you might've faced in, in publishing through just your your work site or or the time or whatever whatever the case may be I think just the time commitment right you, you've got to be in it for the long haul um I think of publishing as as a marathon event um, and as Julie was saying thinking about things in the beginning and just realizing you kind of go from step to step and I I had a good professor who would say, you know, the goal is not to make it perfect. It's to get it through the gate, <laughs> right? So you can get it through the next gate. And so, you know, the challenge of getting everything down in the formatting, make sure I've got each piece, um, but it wasn't painful. And I think that's the difference, right? Things can be challenging or they can be painful. I think with working with uh, JNEB, it was a, a very fair and laid, well laid out process um, to where it just helped you move through those steps. I think just just being patient with the process. Thanks, Melissa. Aaron, how about you? Any challenges that you that you faced or you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, I, I echo what Melissa said about time. I mean, the lack of time is is very real. Um, we are pulled at the school district in many different directions, and we uh, have to be very flexible and in, in changing course on a day-by-day -day basis for whatever some you know whatever comes up. Um, and so our timeline was very long in publishing. Um, you know, we collected this data in 2018-19 um, school year, so this is <laughs> you know it took us that long to kind of complete the project and analyze the data, get all our reports out to all our funders. This, I mean, our primary role is to talk to our uh, programs and, and and inform the the work that they do. So that had to come first. Um, and then kind of sitting down on our like bits of spare time here and there, um, getting our, you know, kind of um, revising our reports and rethinking our reports in terms of uh, publishing. And, um, and I think that is also, it was intimidating for us. I've only 
published in two or three other journals um, in my career. There was, you know, one for my dissertation, one with one of my professors. And so this was really the first time I ever embarked on publishing kind of by myself without a little bit of help. Um, and it is very intimidating. We, you know, we don't have that much publishing experience. Uh, on top of that, you know, I'm primarily an education researcher. So publishing in a, in a, you know, in the field of public health is very different. There's different conventions, there's different expectations, different language. Um, and so kind of helping, you know, figuring out how to uh, translate for a lack of a better word into public health was definitely a challenge. Um, and so, you know, we just had to kind of laugh at ourselves sometimes, you know, and just be, just keep going, be persistent um, in doing it because we really believed that we had a unique perspective on snap programming that could really help other evaluators primarily in other um, areas of the country and maybe maybe hopefully um, you know some of the folks that make decisions at the national level with SNAPED um, really kind of inform um, their thinking about some of the some of these um, topics and and from a new lens because we're again we're, we're primarily education researchers so I think that is a strength um, to bring to the work that is happening in in school community partnerships um, and again, as we've said, the lack of access to IRBs, and also I'll add in a lack of access to a university library uh, to do our literature reviews. It sort of had to be kind of bootleg in some ways, you know, getting articles from friends who did have access. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a real challenge as well, I think, when you're outside academia. And I think your your point is a really good one um, when you're saying, you know, I'm, I'm outside of public health, I'm, I'm in educational research and, or Melissa, you're a nurse practitioner and do, do I fit with JNEB? Um, and you both fit beautifully with JNEB and the work that you're doing. So, so to our participants today, if, if you're questioning that, if you're feeling I have to be in nutrition to, to publish with JNEB or I'm not doing you know, public health work, um, again, reach out to us, have a conversation um, because it's not just nutrition uh, professionals who are publishing in JNEB. And um, it's these types of lenses that we want. We want to uh, be looking at nutrition issues from multiple lenses and, and both Aaron and Melissa uh, provide that, the work that they've done have provided that. Uh, Julie, any other challenges that um, you'd like to uh, mention or add on? I, I feel like I've talked about a lot of barriers, so I should say something positive now. Yeah. I you know we <laughs> talked about sort of being intimidated with the process. And I always always say the best like writing advice I got in, in my lifetime is remembering that you don't have to provide the the definitive answer for all eternity, right? In your paper. This is a gift that you're giving to the profession. You are adding on an important piece to the story right? Which is, then you hand off to others, right? To fill it in more. So if you're, you're sort of afraid, like, is my work good enough? Is it important enough? You know, just, just realize that. that and, and coming from practice, that's an even, I don't want to say it's an even more important part of the story. It's an essential part of the story. It, it is equal. And so if you think of it in that way, again, rather than having to say, oh my gosh, do I have all the statistics and, you know, absolute statistical certainty, we certainly want a rigorous paper, but if that helps you feel like this is a little bit more approachable, I guess I would say that's that's my advice to you. That's the advice I received a long time ago. And I think that, you know, can maybe make it a little less intimidating. It's still a little bit intimidating. I'll give, I'll give you that. 
Um, but remember, you're a wonderful storyteller and you're continuing on the story of what's happening in your programs. Thanks. It, it is intimidating. <laughs> it continues to be intimidating. Um, but as you, again, you've got two examples here of um, authors who work with unique populations who work in an area of readiness that we might ne not necessarily see um, much in the literature. You are um, the experts in the area. So if you're feeling, if you if you think that the work that you're doing is novel and um, important to de disseminate, which I'm sure it is, um, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to put it out there and um, to ask the questions. Um, so Julie touched on some some benefits. Are there other benefits, um, Melissa, that you have found that you may not have expected? I'd like to highlight what you said in terms of JNEB being inclusive, and that was uh, critical for me. Two of my authors are nutrition scientists, and one of the things when I was looking to publish was, where can my paper fit? <laughs> you know, and it's like, are they going to kind of like do the downturn on me because I'm not a nutritionist or this isn't my area? And I did not feel that at all. Um, and that was certainly a benefit. And just, I think the professionalism and what I felt the goal of the editors and even the reviewers was to help get a quality product out there. It wasn't, how can I get to know? <laughs> it was, how can we get to yes? And, and that's important for me. Thank you. And we strive for that. We strive to, to, um, submit good reviews and to have conversations with our authors about how can we get to that? Yes. I like that, Melissa. Aaron, um, what about from your perspective, um, benefits of the publishing of, of your paper or the work that you're doing? Yeah. I mean, I think in general, um, it really, the experience was a, a really great one. It really helped push us to refine and distill our findings and our, um, you know, in, in a in a way that kind of really made sense and contributed to the field. Uh, I think we hadn't, you know, every iteration of our report kind of got us a little bit closer, but it was really the peer review process that elevated it to something that we were really proud of that could be, um, I think, you know, seen as applicable in other, you know, of course, it's like their case studies and, you know, limitations that go along with qualitative research. But I think it there are lessons to be learned in other SNAP-Ed programs. And we really um, uh, feel really, uh, grateful that we were able to share them in a way. It was important to us also to um, to share our findings um, publicly, not just on our website, because it was we had reports on our website that were freely available, but our website doesn't get that much traffic from anybody outside of our school district. We really thought it was important to get our work into uh, like a searchable database so that anybody working on SNAP-Ed programs might come across our work um, if they're looking at this particular, um, uh, these particular you know, topic areas. Um, and, you know, also I think the benefit is we were really able to uplift our own um, school and teacher voices. Um, you know, the, the recipients of the programming have, have a voice um, that I think has been um, really missing from some of the conversation that had been, uh, that had taken place in the literature, in, in, you know, before. Um, and specific to JNEB, I mean, Lauren, you were amazing to work with. I don't know if we would have continued been able to be as persistent in the process if it wasn't for you. Um, you know, really, I think held our hand a little bit more than probably typically you do. But that um, was really helpful in helping to interpret some of the comments from the peer reviewers and um, 
you know, and really kind of translating between fields and really understanding what the expectations of the journal were. Um, and we're really grateful for you, you know, specifically about that. Thank you, Aaron. I, I learned from your team as well. So that was a, that was reciprocal learning there. Uh, so I, I appreciate that comment. Um, is there anything else that the panel would like to say about suggestions for those who might not be in academia for publishing? Um, Julie, have anything else you'd like to add? But believe in yourself. Your experience is very valuable. Um, that's what I would say. And I know, I know the barriers, right? It's hard because things aren't always set up in the best way, but you know, you, you can really do this and we really welcome your voices at JNM. Thanks, Julie. Melissa? I'll just echo what someone put in the chat. Um, you know, it, you've, you've put your heart and soul into something and you put in your best work forward. And when you get feedback, even the most constructive person, it, it can hurt or it can sting. Um, and so just recognizing and validating that one of my mentors said feedback is a gift. And I always try to remember that um, when people are reviewing, they're volunteering their personal time and they really want to see the work moved forward. Um, most people are doing their best, even when they seem not to be. And so when you get that feedback, you know, if it's too much, just put it aside, put it in the drawer <laughs> for a few days and then bring it back out and say, okay, let me look at this constructively okay, now let's go through this and maybe with your co-authors as well. Say, yeah, maybe I understood it because it was in my head, but they didn't see that. I've got to spell that out a bit better. Thanks, Melissa. Erin? I would just, okay. Oh, they always interpret lots of comments as they're actually invested. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. <laughs> I was about to say the same thing. I mean, people don't give you such detailed comments if they don't want to see you know, if they don't see the potential for it to be improved and want to see it move forward, because if they're, you know, if they want to reject your paper, they're not going to spend time, you know, reviewing. I mean, this is what I always tell myself, you know, um, after the sting wears off, um, you know, it definitely, you know, have to think about how much time this person is putting into such detailed comments. I mean, they must want to see it moved forward. Um, and I would say the I, I also echo what Julie said in believing in the work. I mean, I think that's that belief is sort of another piece of the persistence that it took for us. We, we went through four rounds of peer review in our paper. So just to give people a sense of, you know, it did take some time to, you know, address all of the, the comments, um, but we did it. And I think because we believed in ourselves and also um, one of the best pieces of advice that I received from one of my mentors in my PhD program was don't, with the publishing process in particular, was don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Like don't sit on your work for so long because you think it's not perfect enough to submit to a journal. And I've always had that in my mind too. Like we'll get it into good enough shape to kind of get it through a first pass in a journal and then we'll get feedback and we can refine from there. Um, and, and I do think that that is sort of the, especially for us practitioners, sort of the best course uh, of action. Thanks very much. And, and again, I know the review process is difficult and not always um, what you would hope, but if you have questions or need clarifications on a comment, um, a reviewer comment, you have a handling editor who is assigned to your particular paper. So please feel free to reach out. We've got, we really do have a wonderful editorial staff who is uh, willing to help you with clarify or be a conduit between 
uh, you and a reviewer if need be. So um, I echo everything that the panel has said uh, also about this, that um, our reviewers are uh, do their best to provide you with um, excellent feedback so that you can improve the paper. And, and again, I'll go back to Melissa so you can get to that yes um, for the paper, which is really important. Um, the other thing that I want to touch on very, very quickly was just how um, um, you can engage with the journal. And we really want um, uh, you to feel comfortable engaging. And one of those things is to become a reviewer yourself. And um, we are always looking and we want that practitioner lens. We get um, papers from nutrition education programs. We want people who have that expertise to serve as reviewers. So if you have an interest in becoming a reviewer, let me know. Um, we have, you don't have to have a PhD to be a reviewer. Uh, you don't have to know everything about statistics as Julie had said earlier, to be a reviewer. Um, we will have some reviewers who say, you know, this is not my strength, but here's my strength. And then we can, we are able to address, um, that part of the paper with another reviewer. So, so there's lots of ways that you can contribute to the publishing process and also just learn more about the process and becoming a reviewer is one of those. So if you're interested in becoming a reviewer, um, please reach out to me. I'm happy to um, get you uh, connected with our managing editor um, to help with that process. We also recognize our authors. We recognize our reviewers in a lot of different ways through editor's choice articles. Uh, one of the things I've enjoyed so much as the editor-in-chief is doing podcasts with authors who have um, uh, done some innovative, um, interesting work and um, many of those podcasts have been with um, authors who work in programs uh, so that I learn more about that and I get a chance to um, hear uh, from the author's perspective about their experience with the um, with publishing. We have silver, gold, and platinum authors, and that's based on how often you uh, publish in the journal. We also have articles that are awarded each year on a best research article, best research brief, a best gem, and we also have reviewers of excellence. So there's lots of ways also for this to, to um, uh, help you as well. These recognitions um, in the field are um, readily uh, available and we promote them through a lot of our, um, our social media, get that up, our social media links, and we are all over LinkedIn, and we have um, we have a Twitter presence, and we also have our podcasts on YouTube and Spotify. So there's lots of different ways for um, us to get the work out there. So I wanted to just leave you with that and open it up for some questions. We've got um, about 10 minutes for questions that um, we're happy to, to answer. Thank you for the chat comments here. Do you have any questions?
I'm doing quick reads on these chats. If anyone sees a question in there, just let me know. I, um, this is a good time to practice believing in yourself and getting a question out there. So sure. admitting an abstract for the conference, any advice on that? I guess I would, I think abstract advice, publication advice, one of the piece of advice I usually give to students I'm mentoring is to find a good template. <laughs> um, whether you're doing an abstract or a publication, look and see what that journal or the conference has published before, because those are the things that get accepted. Um, and there's typically a flow and a rhythm of what should be um, and then you can just model. So you're not starting from scratch. Um, and it's beyond plug and play, but kind of plug and play and then edit from there. Easier to start from a page with something than a blank page. And you have a good model. That would be my advice. And I'll, I'll build on that too, Melissa. So we do publish a supplement that has all of the conference abstracts so that you can see um, what a research abstract looks like, what a program abstract looks like. And um, that's really an excellent guide for you if you're considering writing an abstract. And March 1st, I think, is the deadline for abstracts for the conference coming up in the summer. Uh, does analysis have to be finalized for abstract or it can be preliminary? It can be preliminary. It does not have to be finalized. You know, some of sometimes these are works in progress and you haven't gotten all the way through, but it does not have to be finalized for the abstract itself. And I would just say when you get further on, I know you're asking about an abstract for the conference, but for beginner writers, I usually use something called text structure analysis, which was what Melissa sort of was referring to, where you go in and you look at the journal that you're interested in and you say, okay, how are, how are these structured? What are the headings? about how much content do they have under each one. And it helps you just get an idea of writing, writing in a way that fits the style of the journal. Um, and so I really recommend that if you're a beginner, beginner writer and there are some good resources out there, maybe we can include them at, um, with the webinar when it goes out. But that, that can just really help you get a handle you know, on starting the writing process. And if you have someone else who's published yeah. before, that you can reach out to them as well. No, I, I was just going to hop in and say, um, so I, one of the roles that I have is kind of managing uh, the abstract review process for the conference. Um, so I did also just want to say, so the links that I added in the chat that are on SNEB.org, those are not just generic kind of things that are out there. Those are in fact, like the things that we look at and give to reviewers as kind of their rubrics and their information and that kind of thing. So those resources are really kind of tailored and are meant to actually be useful to this specific case and not just kind of generic things we pulled from somewhere and put out there for folks. And I would just add one more thing to all of this, which is great. And I have definitely done this myself in the past. Um, just to pay really close attention to the methodology, because I think um, what's expected for a qualitative piece would be different from a quantitative, necess you know, necessarily. And that I think that's for conference abstracts and also for the um, the journal, you know, article requirements as well. Thanks, Erin. Else, do we have any other questions? 
sometimes I'm asked, does it matter who I am in the field? Do you look at the paper any differently? And and I I don't. You know, if you're brand brand new to me, that's wonderful. It's the same um, either way. So I know sometimes junior junior writers or people who are new to the field sometimes worry about that, but it's never been the case, at least for me. Thanks. For those who are getting over the hump and we've talked about the intimidation, another tip that's helpful is having a trusted person before you submit that you can go to, um, that you can show your ugly baby to. That's what one of our uh, researchers used to say, you know, don't make it all pretty as what Aaron was saying. Don't let perfect be the enemy of done or good, but show your ugly baby and then you can get some good feedback in between there. And you've kind of got, you know, your editor before you get it through the gate of the other editors. Be willing to take that feedback, right? So I remember my first abstract had, my mentor didn't use red, used blue. It was blue all over my uh, abstract, but I never wrote the same after that. So, so I echo, Melissa, what you're saying is find someone, a mentor or someone who is willing to take a look at it and give you some really good constructive feedback on it. There's great work being done out there and we want to see it. And uh, we want to see it in the conference and we want to see it in the journal. And we want you to feel like you have a home with JNEB for sure. Um, so we're going to continue our efforts to, um, to really um, include our practitioners and to be intentional about that. And if you've got suggestions for how we can do that, um, I'm open to that. I just finished my first year. I took a lot of feedback in my first year and um, I am willing to take some more. So if you've got some suggestions for me, whether you're new to the publishing process or you've been publishing, reviewing for years and years and years, I think um, uh, um, I want to hear from you. The editorial staff wants to hear from you. And we really do want JNEB to be a home for the, the great work that you're doing right now. So I appreciate you being here and I appreciate the panelists being here and appreciate you, Paul, for organizing everything. Well, thank you, Lauren. Uh, I don't actually organize everything. Just wanna say that I, <laughs> I pretty much just show up and do my little piece here. Uh, our other staff member, uh, Sam, uh, she actually does most of the organizing for things, so just just to give credit where it's due. Um, but thank you, Lauren, and thank you again to all of our panelists uh, today. Uh, we really appreciate you coming here and sharing your knowledge. Um, for the few final reminders on my end, uh, again, please do complete that survey that you'll see when we close out today's session. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. Uh, be on the lookout for an email with today's recording uh, and the speaker handouts. Uh, we'll also be following up with the CEU certificate just a little bit later. Uh, if you enjoyed today's webinar, uh, make sure to check out the upcoming webinar section of the website. Um, and also uh, with the mention of abstracts, so that deadline is in fact March 1st. Uh, you can find out more information about that on sneb.org, uh, along with uh, additional information about the awards nomination process, uh, which will be given out uh, during the conference in Knoxville. 
Uh, that concludes today's session. Uh, thank you all for attending and have a great day. Thanks very much. Thank you.